Hello and welcome to Adam and Eve on CJSR FM 88.5 in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Rose Eva Forks Jenkins. And my name is Marco Visconti. We'll be your host for today's episode of Adam and Eve. Thanks for tuning in. Adam and Eve is Edmonton's only feminist news radio show. We are adamant on highlighting, discussing, and engaging with issues that affect women across Edmonton and around the world. On this week's episode, we're going to engage with the topic of activism on the University of Alberta campus. First, we're going to hear about the celebration of indigeneity on campus that occurred on November 10th. Afterwards, we'll hear from Rosiva, who attended the Parkland Conference that also took place on campus. To start off the show, you might have noticed the great music that's been playing. The track that you've been hearing is the title track called Keisha Slash Care from Algonquin artist Mish Kota. I've been really digging the album of the same name and you should definitely check it out. And definitely check out specifically um, this song and the YouTube video that we'll be sharing on the Facebook page. So the video features people dancing in front of an old brick building and I wanted to read the description for the video. It reads, The wall that was filmed is surrounding a convent in Montreal. Historically, these buildings harbor a religion that attempts to suppress and erase Aboriginal people's lives. The people featured in this video vary in race, gender, non-gender, and sexuality, and they agreed to be in this video to dance and be present in front of this oppressive wall that is founded on the suffering of others who deserve to be free. Mishkota is an Algonquin, two-spirit woman who lives and practices in Montreal. On today's show on activism on campus, we will feature talks from the Parkland Conference. The conference took place Friday, November 17th to the 19th, and the theme was Collapse, Neoliberalism in Crisis. We will start off with an excerpt from a talk from political science professor Isabel Altamirano. Her talk was entitled Beyond Resistance, Learning from Indigenous Practices. First, Isabel provides us with a description of the racism that has occurred here on the University of Alberta campus. Afterwards, we will hear from student organizers about the event that they plan to promote Indigenous solidarity. Here is Professor Isabel Iltamirano. In Canada, often when we talk about Trump, somehow we feel that we are different in Canada, that that racism doesn't exist here that white supremacy doesn't exist here, that somehow the United States is this uh, country with all those abuses and abuse of power and white supremacy can be at the front. However, in Canada, the realities of indigenous communities and racialized communities are increasing in the same way that the visibility of white supremacist groups. I'm just going to give you three examples, and there's more, many more. Recently, here on campus at the University of Alberta, there has been two episodes. One around, uh, around uh, Halloween, and that was the feather pumpkin that was left at the Faculty of Native Studies. A week later, that thing became a, a sign that read, it is okay to be white. The same sign that has appeared throughout the United States universities. 
Thank you to Professor Isabel Altamirano for describing the events and framing them within a global political context. In reaction to these events, the Native Studies Course Requirement Group hosted a celebration of indigeneity on campus on November 10th. Rosiva, you attended this event. Can you tell us what it was like? Well, uh, the event started off with um, speakers, followed by a round dance with some drummers in the middle of quad. And people who were walking by kind of seemed curious and stopped and took some pictures on their phone. And they seemed like they were wondering what was happening. And then they were just invited to join in. And that was awesome that the circle got even bigger as people joined. And there was hot chocolate and there was children playing in the snow. So it was a really beautiful event that um, communicated a lot of community and solidarity. And it really contrasted, I think, against the ugliness of racism and the hatred that's been displayed. And... um, I was lucky enough to record a brief chat with Tareen Thomas, who spoke at the event. Um, but unfortunately, this was done on location during a very windy day. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry in advance for the quality of the audio. That's not the best because of these environmental factors, but I'll share what I was able to get. So today we organized a flash mob round dance just to um, celebrate indigeneity on campus. We wanted to show all, all the indigenous students on campus that campus is a safe space, a safe space to practice our culture and um, to be here as indigenous students. Just because in the past couple of months and over over the past couple of years, actually, there's been a lot of racism happening on campus. Basically, we just wanted to assure all of the students here that campus is a good place to be. It's safe, and where we can be. We can practice our culture on campus, and um, a lot of wh- 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 why we did this because a lot of first year and second year students who are really new to the university um, felt targeted and felt like they didn't have a place here. You just heard Tareen Thomas speaking at the celebration of indigeneity on campus. We started off the show with Professor Isabel Altamirano's talk at the Parkland Conference. Rosiva was able to sit down with her after her talk and have a follow up interview. Let's take a listen. My name is Isabel Altamirano. Uh, I am Zapotec from the Tehuantepec Isthmus, Oaxaca, Mexico, and an associate professor in the Department of Political Science. Wonderful, thank you. I'd like to know kind of what brought you to Edmonton and the University of Alberta. Um, it's funny that you are asking me that question because we just talked a little bit about um, how Canada represents itself. One of the reasons that I ended up coming to Canada to do a PhD is um, because I was involved with um, with a lot of indigenous organizations in throughout the Americas um, in 1992 as part of the um, uh, hemispheric resistance against uh, the discovery of the Americas, right? And I use quotation marks. Um, sort of like a, I sort of came to uh, know a little bit more about indigenous peoples in Canada. So I came because I wanted to learn a little bit more about uh, Canada while I was doing a PhD and possibly to try to sort of create connections and alliances between Latin America and and Canada and the U.S. Um, So my biggest surprise was that I started doing my PhD and there wasn't no other indigenous students and uh, no indigenous topics necessarily for a PhD. Um, Even though Canada was presenting itself as a 
kind of branding itself in doing so much about indigenous rights in Canada, right? Like that's the way it was promoting itself. So I thought, well, maybe that's something to be learned. Something is is interesting about what they're doing. And uh, and yes, I have learned a lot, but not necessarily about what Canada was trying to sell itself about knowing how to deal with diversity and doing it right. Interesting. So um, would you say you've seen kind of the growth, especially being at the University of Alberta as an academic in the field of, um, in that research, or you said there wasn't very much, has it kind of stayed at that level? Kind of, have you seen that process, progress as an academic? Well, it has changed and it's changing. Um, As I said, I was the only brown person or indigenous person uh, doing a PhD at that time. You know, this we're talking about 16 years ago. And now it's changing. Uh, Now we have um, a PhD in indigenous studies at the university and there there are many more uh, indigenous faculty that have been hired. And I think that that's extremely positive, at least for students so that they can see themselves represented in the classroom as well. And uh, for me, that's kind of important in the sense that um, I see my role in the classroom as as both as an activist, as as an instructor, in the sense that um, I'm trying to make it better for people of uh, color in my classrooms and indigenous peoples in the sense that, you know, being mindful of their presence in a classroom at at all times. And I think it does changing over time, uh, but we still need to to do a lot more work. We shouldn't feel that we've done enough because I, I think it's important to do way more than this. And I think it's interesting that you talk about, or and Yun Bashir's talk, you touched on representation, on that representation of knowledge systemically from kindergarten all the way up. And so we're talking about seeing that representation at an academic level, but then what about, it makes me wonder about, um, we're talking about kindergarten, like at an elementary level, seeing them, seeing children being represented and seeing themselves represented in that way, what do you think um, kind of we can do to um, help them see themselves represented at an early age? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, we should teach history at all levels, Canadian history at all levels, and uh, being mindful, obviously, of um, the content for kindergarten. But children are not stupid, you know, and pretending that we are protecting them by not talking about these issues is just replicating one understanding and one particular memory, and that's problematic. I think that we need to do way better in terms of creating stories for kids that address uh, history of residential schools, that addresses history of indigenous peoples, that addresses, uh, you know, like the presence of the LGBTQ community in, in, you know, in the classrooms, that there's different types of families, that it's not just the nuclear family and so on, you know. I think that um, kids are at Kids are, you know, wonderful human beings that could learn way better, right? Like, because they're they're sponges. But it's about representing for them a, a much better world than the one that we are inhabiting right now. You know, that's what I think we need to do. And it's so true. They're the sponges, and we're the ones feeding them. Yes. So we have to be um, critical of what we're giving to them, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. 
and being mindful of what we didn't have and what we need to do for this to be better. I want to see those kids in, maybe I won't see them in my classrooms in the future, but I want to just have the idea that these people will be able to have a different kind of conversation in the classrooms, for instance. You're listening to Adam and Eve on CJSR 88.5 FM. My name is Marco Visconti, and if you're just tuning in, you heard the first part of Rosiva Fork Jenkins' discussion with University of Alberta professor Isabel Altamirano at the Parkland Conference. Next up, Rosiva asked Professor Altamirano about her opinion on what lies behind Justin Trudeau's veneer of appearing as an ally to the Indigenous communities in Canada. I don't necessarily understand the fascination with Trudeau. You know, the young-looking guy, yes, that's fine for, you know, a first impression, I guess. But I care more about what is being promised and the ways in which he has been backing, you know, those, those backing off those promises, right? Um, you can also believe, you know, think that instead of just affirming indigenous traditions, it's more a political use of indigenous issues, you know, uh, because the important elements for indigenous communities and indigenous organizations, those haven't been addressed. The promise that he made, well, first he said that Canada was removing all obstacles to the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. When he came to talk, have a conversation about how to implement it, the, the comment is, well, but we can't really do that because that's going to challenge Canadian laws. Well, did you remove or not the obstacles? That's an, another issue. The same thing with the National Inquiry about the missing and murdered Indigenous women, you know. Do you really want to do an inquiry or are you spending all this money without actually listening to the families, right? Because it, it is impossible to have a, a working group where all of the people have, that have been in charge keep resigning because there is something systemically problematic in that process that it doesn't necessarily fit the needs of the families of these people. And that's another problem. And we can keep going, you know, the same thing with pipelines, you know. So at the end of the day, I would ask the question of who is enchanted by Trudeau? Welcome back to Adam and Eve. My name is Rose Eva Forks Jenkins, and you just finished hearing my talk with political science professor Isabel Altamirano. Next up, I had a chat with Rebecca Graf McGray, who also presented at the Parkland Conference. Her talk was entitled Blurring the Line Private Clinics and the Neoliberal Erosion of Public Health Care. Here's my talk with Rebecca about her research into private members' clinics. Can you give a short introduction of yourself and your work? Sure. I'm uh, one of the research managers at the Parkland Institute. Um, part of my job there is to look into particularly prominent issues in Alberta politics and social policy um, and to offer the most accurate and the most um, truthful research that we can in order to help shape um, progressive policy options for our province um, and to think about how those different issues are impacting on people uh, at different um, in different groups across our province. 
So um, one group specifically that I was thinking of relating to uh, this topic would be uh, people who are pregnant and um, what access to care they would have. And then recently the Royal Alec got um, their fertility clinic defunded. So if you could tell me more about that and what that looks like. For sure. Um, it's a slightly complicated situation in terms of the um, the uh, public fertility clinic at the Royal Alex. So they, they actually offer a combination of both um, publicly insured um, medical services regarding fertility issues and at the same time um, offering um, services like um, IVF or intrauterine insemination, um, egg or sperm donation services, which are not included in our provincial health care plan. They're not covered and patients have traditionally had to pay for those out of pocket. So what's happened with the, the clinic is they've determined that um, all of those uninsured services that are not covered by Alberta Health um, are going to be uh, removed from that facility entirely. So this is going to have a couple of different impacts. On on the one hand, it does mean that that facility is going to be able to concentrate on offering um, healthcare surrounding th those medical aspects of infertility. On the other hand, it essentially gives a monopoly to the private um, fertility clinic here in the city to handle those other uh, those other services such as IVF. Um, and what we've seen in terms of other um, instances of, of privatization, when you do that, on the, the first thing that happens is your waiting times increase. We've got people who are on wait lists at the Royal Alex Clinic who are now going to be waiting along with an existing wait list for the private facility. So um, that's going to offer a lot of hardship for those couples who are waiting. And we know in terms of infertility, um, time is is uh, not, um, not an advantage there the more that you wait. The second part of that is that um, oftentimes staff and uh, experts, physicians, RNs, um, laboratory techs follow um, they follow where the work is available. So we may see a drain on those um, those staff resources going um, and taking up employment in the private facility um, because they can offer bonuses or they, they offer better uh, working hours or whatever it can be. So that, that one decision, while um, on the one hand seeming to prioritize those public services that are being offered, is potentially going to have a big knock-on effect on those couples who are waiting and on the medical staff who had performed those as well. And in terms of the staff as well, you talked about um, how the defunding would um, affect um, nurses and medical staff like that, which is also a gendered profession. And then having those both the public and private, I wonder for nurses, would that then um, kind of give them advantages, like you said, bonuses if they worked in the private versus the public sphere, would that end up kind of helping them in their job market to have kind of the um, competition of the two that they could look at for employment? In some ways, it seems to. I mean, always... Um you know, it, it's everyone's individual choice to to take employment that's going to offer you the best salary or the best working conditions or a shift that works for you and your family. I mean, those are all individual choices that have to be weighed up. Um, at the same time, um, what we've seen with some of the private membership clinics, um, particularly in, in Edmonton and Calgary, is that bonuses and things that are being offered to, um, to physicians and nurses that can't be matched in the public 
system, certainly not if we're trying to control um, our costs there. So that creates a big, a big disadvantage for um, trying to hire medical personnel in the public system. The other flip side of that is that um, while sometimes private clinics try to entice um, highly qualified medical staff into their private facilities, when it comes to privatization, um, and usually female workers, but like more precariously employed workers in things like um, janitorial, uh, laundry, um, food preparation, or um, other sort of auxiliary services associated with, with providing that care are the ones who lose out. They lose out on unionized jobs. They lose out on job protections. Um, and often they lose out in terms of just their basic hourly wage dropping hugely. So with the private facilities, they're able to offer those bonuses to nursing staff or to to specialist physicians uh, or to radiographers because they're charging patients exorbitantly out of their own pocket and because they're cutting costs on the backs of of those um, support workers I love that when you're talking about the research you're doing that research yourself and you are personally going to investigate these clinics and I was wondering if you had any um, interesting stories about what that was like for you uh, it was certainly interesting. I felt a little bit like, I don't know, put my Nancy Drew hat on there for a minute. Um, it was I'm used to being in front of books or computers at the library and not out in the field, so to speak. Um, but so I, I was having um, a really difficult time obtaining information. And that's one of the key things about private clinics is that they don't offer a lot of transparency about their business model and how they work. So instead of um, giving up, I made an appointment um, with a particular clinic here in Edmonton and uh, I walked in the front door I was greeted by the chief um, sales manager who um, proceeded to give me a tour of this facility which was to be honest quite jaw-dropping it didn't look anything like a medical clinic it was um, there were crystal chandeliers there were um, sofas with with sort of big ottomans and lounges she offered me a we didn't get offered a coffee it was like oh, would you like a latte or seven different kinds of herbal tea um you know so obviously that surface level of comfort was um the very first impression that you received were you were you in a clinic or a spa or there was a d definite blurring of that uh, definition there um and she sat down with me and um, wanted to run through my own reasons for being um, being there at this clinic. Uh, so of course I can't tell her. Well, I'm a researcher for the Parkland Institute. <laughs> tell me, tell me about your fees. Um, so. As they all say, the best lie begins in, in a tiny truth. Um, and I mentioned um, that my mother had had a stroke the year previously. Now, just to, to clarify a few things is that I have no health indicators of putting me at risk of, of stroke or, or heart uh, issues. I've been vegan for 15 years. I'm under, you know, healthy weight, uh, exercise regularly. So I'm not at risk for any of these things and I've never had any medical history. But immediately the sales director, who is not a medical professional, says to me, oh, I am so glad you came. I mean, Honestly, I can understand you're worried about your health and this is the right place for you to be. We are going to do every test possible on you to make sure that we eliminate your risk for heart and stroke factors. So 
really on the one hand to um, your average person coming in would feel incredibly reassured by that, but also perhaps a little bit anxious of like, oh, wow, these are all tests that my doctor wasn't offering me. Why wasn't I being offered these things? And and the list was extensive in terms of cardiac testing and, and these sort of like um, really unusual uh, blood tests that I'd never heard of. Um, and this is to someone like myself with no risk factors whatsoever. Um, so part of the model here that I was learning about was this is standard. It's not about this personalized, unique care that they offer you when you walk in the door. It's about going through a standard checklist of these extra services um, to ensure that you pay for the most um, when you get in. So it was quite eye-opening um, when I wanted to ask about money and I said, you know, I've got a family, I've got kids, I can't really afford um, a lot, what are your prices like? She actually handed me a laminated sheet with, with a few of the different packages available. I noted that the, most, um, the least expensive was around $4,000 and the most expensive was over $8,000. Um, so it, out of reach of, of your average Albertan, for sure. Um, and at the end of five minutes, uh, the director of the clinic came in and just removed the laminated sheet. <laughs> at no time was I able to like take pictures or write down information. They were very, very cagey about releasing the information. So it was quite um, an unusual experience. I also asked the sales director, I said, so, what happens, um, you know, you, you've offered all of these um, luxurious services, uh, extra tests that are, I can't get anywhere else. What if I just have bronchitis? What, what if I just, you know, get pneumonia and I need to see my doctor? Um, and she looked very uncomfortable. And she said, you know, some people, you know, they definitely, they, they, they form a bond with our doctors here. They want to come in. That's that's fine um, we would you know that that aspect of care that's billed through through Alberta Health um, but mostly we try to encourage our clients to go to the walk-in clinic across the parking lot for those kind of like daily medical needs um, yeah um, you know just, just for your comfort. So she was clearly, she was clearly uh, unsettled by that question. When I went back to my office and did a little digging, it emerges that the walk-in clinic across the parking lot is owned by the same company. Touche, sales director. So very clearly, um, being in that situation, I had access to to some of that behind the scenes um, information, but your average person walking in, um, I can imagine they wouldn't know where to start asking so many of these questions. How are, how are these different services billed? Is this covered by my, my insurance or my employer? Is it, you know, uh, don't worry, she said, we can do some creative accounting and sort that all out for you. Um, and really you're just bombarded with information about how amazing these services are and not anything substantial about what this really costs in real terms. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Adam and Eve, Edmonton's only feminist news program. Thank you very much today to Tareen Thomas who spoke to me at the celebration of Indigeneity on campus. And I also want to give a thank you to Isabel Iltamirano and Rebecca Graf McGray, who spoke to me at the Parkland Conference as well. Also, thank you to Mish Kota for providing us with the music for today's show. You couldn't end it. You couldn't end it.
The track that we're ending on is entitled Majashin slash Goodbye. Adam and Eve is a spoken word project of CJSR FM 88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta, and our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. For more information on our program and to send us any feedback, please visit our website, adamandevecjsr.wordpress.com. We're always looking for more volunteers to help out, so if you're interested in learning any aspect of radio production, just get in touch. We produced this week's episode in the studios of CJSR FM 88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, on Treaty 6 territory. We are grateful to the diverse Indigenous peoples of this land, including the Cree, Blackfoot, Métis, Nakota Sioux, Iroquois, Dene, Ojibwe, Soto, Anishinaabe, Inuit, and many others whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence our vibrant community. Thank you very much for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Rosie Beforex Jenkins and Marco Visconti. Have a good adamant evening. <laughs> <laughs>